Hello, beautiful people. My guest today is Tim Desmond. He is a Buddhist scholar, a therapist, a mindfulness trainer, and the author of How to Stay Human in a Fucked Up World and the Self-Compassion Workbook. I really enjoyed this conversation with Tim, particularly because he gave me the tools and the actions to take when someone is dealing with grief. And that is something that I will take away from this conversation. If you have any other takeaways or you think that takeaway is great and want to talk about it on Twitter and tell me about it, shoot me a message or shoot a tweet out at Hey Danny Miranda. Looking forward to hearing from you and I'm grateful you're listening. So without further ado, let's get right into the episode with Tim Desmond. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. Tim, thank you for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time. Excited to do this conversation because... I really respect all the light you've brought into the world and miss so much darkness. So I just wanted to say thank you. I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah, it's it's great to meet you, Danny. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So I figured we'd start things off with you at 19 years old and you're just getting into mindfulness. You're just getting into um, the the practices that transform your life. And I'm curious what the people around you we're saying yeah okay so um my background at this point so i i grew up in boston um with a single alcoholic mom um we were homeless for a while when i was a teenager i i made it into college on a sports scholarship otherwise i probably wouldn't have been able to go um in a political science class i was assigned a book by Thich Han, pieces every step and it pointed out to me so much of what was missing in my life, the practices of mindfulness and compassion, the ability to, to be focused on healing and transformation while at the same time be focused on being an advocate for justice and, and, and improving the world. That was just kind of what I wanted for my life. And so I quit sports, which was like, which was weird for a lot of people. Uh, I was in the process. So I, I, so I, I had transferred to the University of Rhode Island and I had a really good high school friend. He ran track um, and he was pledging a frat at the time. So I was hanging out with him while he was pre- pledging a frat. I was you know, playing on the lacrosse team. I was, that, that was a lot of my social interaction and a lot of what I was doing. And what happened was I would be hanging out in the frat house, reading like the autobiography of of Nelson Mandela and just kind of being a weirdo in spaces where people weren't really that interested in what I was interested in. And it was slowly over time 
feeling more disconnected from what was important to the people in my life. But I didn't know other people who were, who had similar interests to me. And so I would be sitting around and, you know, reading Tolstoy or reading Martin, Martin Luther King and other people are playing beer pong and we're like in the same space. And then actually uh, eventually there was uh, some campus activist organizations that I started getting involved with and met some people through that. I met there was a peace and justice center at the university of Rhode Island that was starting to develop. And I met some people through that. And I slowly created a new social circle for myself. And then it took a while before I was able to almost reintroduce myself to the people that I'd gone to high school with and the people that I, I had known bef- when I was, before I'd been exposed to the things that really kind of got me passionate and, and, and be able to kind of remake those bridges and actually have, and now a, a lot of, I'm still like, I'm in touch with several of the people that I went to high school with and we actually connect we're able to connect a lot more than we could just right in those first like year or so when I was going off the rails from their perspective in terms of what, what I was interested in and what I wanted to do with my life. It's so fascinating because I've been the kid playing beer pong in my yeah. own life where yeah. a friend of mine, a person in mine while he's yeah. reading the books and spreading light and kindness. And that's, and now over the past two years, I've been, that yeah. weirdo reading the yeah. books and it's so fascinating seeing how you can change it. I'm sure you had a similar experience because yeah. of your lacrosse background sure. where no one playing lacrosse or very few people playing lacrosse were probably thinking that way at age 19 or, and yeah. it forced you to stop. I'm curious though about the book because I'm sure a lot of people were introduced to that very same book, sure. but not many probably took it upon themselves to change their entire lives because of it. Yeah. Why was that? I, I think that, so, it, you know, it's hard. Honestly, I wish I knew. It's hard for me, honestly, to look around and, and imagine, I mean, why anybody who realizes, who, who's exposed to the idea that your life, there's so much you can do with your life. As soon as you hear about people like Thich Nhat Hanh, who have lived a life that was, it, it wasn't just meaningful and impactful and sort of a martyr type of way where they were willing to like give up all of their own happiness to try to do other things for other people. But instead, it was, you know, it's someone who has really focused on living a, a life that's filled with joy and benefiting other people. And, and as soon as you can see that that's actually something that's available, why that would, it, it's honestly hard for me to, to, to really understand, like, well, what else are you trying to do? I, I mean, maybe it's the idea, maybe. 
I was set up more to be attracted to this partially because my way of living wasn't working for me. And I think that the, the trauma that I lived through growing up, the loneliness, pain, anger, just like the isolation uh, that I, that I had had growing up when I heard about someone who was able to make a difference in the world and have a lot of freedom and peace and joy. Um, maybe it's a little, it was a little clearer to me that that's not how I feel about my life, the freedom and peace and joy. And so it's like, okay, I want that. And maybe the issue of this is kind of what we talk about often, like 12 step kind of stuff about hitting bottom. You know, maybe if somebody was just like, well, my life's pretty good. Like it's, it's going okay for now that then it would feel a little scary, a little scarier to step into the unknown. I think also that combined with the fact that I had always grown up with um, a really powerful message that I, that I feel like that just like had come through culturally, definitely was like something that I got from my mother, but, but also just in the culture that I grew up with, which is um, if, if something's the right thing to do, you do it regardless of the consequences. And, uh, and the idea that you would know that there was something that you should be doing and not do it because it was intimidating or scary or too different, like that, that was just in the, the culture that I had grown up in, in Boston, like the, the really kind of like macho, like, like, uh, the specific type of culture that that existed in the 90s in in Boston, it, it was like, well, if, if there's something that's the right thing to do, you do it regardless of the consequences. And I think that I had really internalized that too, whereas maybe some other people felt a little more like, well, but that seems a little scary or that's not me or that's different. I don't know. Yeah. What would you tell that 18, let's say you're 18, well, sure. And you have that 18 year old in front of you. What would you tell that person who hasn't been introduced to any of this stuff, who's maybe holding a lot of anger in his heart? What would you yeah. tell that person now, knowing everything you've learned? Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting because in, in Buddhist psychology, we, we understand that one of the, one of the first things that, that opens the door for anyone to practice is the belief or confidence that a different kind of life is possible. The, the Pali word is sadha, and then sometimes it's translated as faith, but, and Sharon Salzberg, her whole book on faith, uh, I like to think about it in terms of competence, but it's this idea that if you don't think that it's possible to live a life with real happiness and freedom and non-fear, to be able to move through the world with a sense of like, with like, with no intimidation, feeling completely at home in yourself and able to, to really connect with people, regardless of where they come from. If you don't think that that's possible for you, well, then you're not going to try to do it. So it's the idea that like, regardless of where you come from, regardless of how you've been conditioned thus far, it's possible for a hum any human being to be able to move through life 
with non-fear and joy and freedom and connection. And if you believe that, that what, else, what else do you want from life? Yeah, so I feel like that's, I feel like it would be talking to an 18 year old, it would be about um, helping them to see that that's possible for them. But you believed that it was possible at that time because you took a step, you saw something, and did you think it was possible? So, yeah, and I think that that's another thing. And I think that that's like part of, you know, different people get different messages. So some of my friends growing up got the message, you're, you're never going to be anything, you know, just like, don't take risks, you know, take what you can get because um, life's hard and you're not real, you, you're probably not going to amount to much. And other people get the message of, if you work, you can do anything you want. And I feel like there's like a, a different type of challenge. If that's the message for you, then it, then you can get into perfectionism. You can get into um, feeling like you're supposed to be special and unlike other people. And that like, and, and that, and, and uh, grading your self-worth in terms of, not in terms of ex, you know, external measures of success and uniqueness and all that kind of, but I definitely got that. The message for me was no excuses. If you're willing to work, you can be anything. And then what I saw in Thich Nhat Hanh was someone who had come from a lot of trauma living through, you know, he grew up in the French Vietnamese war and he grew into adulthood during the American Vietnamese war. He had lost a lot of his friends and he was able to, you know, embody and symbolize all these things that I wanted to be. And so I was like, yeah, I mean, if, if somebody can do it, I can do it. That makes a lot of sense. So take us through the childhood. You, you mentioned that, that brief story, in almost every podcast I've heard you done, sure. you mentioned that story, but I want to go deeper on it. Like, what sure. was that experience like when you're homeless at certain points or yeah. your mother's abusing alcohol? Like, what is that? Take me through what that feels like from a child's perspective. Did you feel like you were loved? Did you feel like you had hope? Like, take me through there, if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean... I don't have a ton of really clear memories from childhood. And I think that's probably, you know, some of trauma. My mother was drank actively until I was eight. So I have a lot of memories. A lot of my, you know, early memories are of her drinking, um, you, you know, maybe. So when I was in kindergarten, I was one of the kids, I, had to, I wore a um, house key around my neck and I was supposed to, I walked home from school, you know, five years old, I had to walk home from school, let myself in, find some food. And then I was supposed to go and play with the kids on the street. Um, she'd get home sometimes seven, eight, whatever. Uh, and, and that, that was, that was my life when I was really young. And she was working a lot, but she was also drinking. 
we come from a long line of Boston Irish alcoholics. And so, you know, her father was an abusive alcoholic and I'm, I'm sure that it's, you know, generations and generations of pain that, that somehow, I mean, actually, so what, one of the things that happened, so I, I was definitely a depressed kid, right? I actually, I remember, remember it being like first grade or something like that. And another kid being like, why are you always looking at the ground? And I, and I, I didn't realize that that was, wasn't sort of normal. Like I would just walk around with my head down. And uh, my good friend, so one of the families that I would spend a lot of time with when I was little, uh, uh, when my mother was out, they moved to Pennsylvania uh, when I was eight. And I spent the whole summer that I was eight uh, out at their place in Pennsylvania And my mother talks about this really kind of transforming moment. She called me on the phone to talk and I hadn't seen her for, you know, a month or something like that. I'm an eight-year-old kid. And she said, do you miss me? And I was like, no. Wow. And she's like, okay, I need to get my fucking life together because (laughs) my eight-year-old doesn't miss me. And I haven't seen him for, you know, half the summer. And that's when she started going to AA. And I think it took her a long time to, so, you know, she stopped drinking, but it took her a long time to start her process of healing. I think one thing that I got really clearly growing up was you can decide you want to change things about yourself and then just do it. And I think that that's part of like growing up in 12 step, you know, she would bring me to AA meetings Every time uh, we go to an AA meeting, she would say, if you ever start drinking, you're going to be an alcoholic immediately. Like you just have too much, uh, you know, genetics to be able to ever not be. And so that was a, a, a big impact on me. One other, and then I feel really lucky that all my friends in high school were really serious athletes so that there wasn't a lot of drinking and drug use because everybody was really performance focused. Um, so I, I was able to escape that then. So then she was early in sobriety. And when I was 11, maybe 12, she started, uh, she got involved with this guy named Rick, who was a really great guy. He had actually, she met him at like a halfway house. He was uh, an addict in recovery. And I had this moment of really believing that maybe I would have a, a you know, a male role model in my life, they got engaged. And then right after they got engaged, he died of a brain aneurysm. And so I was, yeah, that happened when I was 13. And then for like a year, year and a half, I was just out of it. Um, My mother was in her own trauma and wasn't really there for me. You know, her fiance had just died And she didn't really have the emotional resources to be able to support me through that. So this person died. And then basically my mother is now just checked out and I'm kind of going through it alone. So I was probably even more depressed and just acting out a lot, like heading into junior high. 
for junior high and maybe the first year or so of high school, I just didn't know how to relate to people. And we were moving every couple of years. We, you know, we, whatever different situations with housing, as a lot of people know, you know, a lot of like working class people know housing changes, you end up moving. Um, and I'd be trying to make new friends in new places. Eventually we ended up going, um, in a high school, um, as I was getting older, I was getting better at sports and it made it easier to make friends. And I, my last couple of years of high school felt I was able to connect with my mother just a little bit. Like our, our relationship was just starting to repair and I had a lot more social connection just my last couple of years of high school. And I think that both of those things were important because by the time I got into college, I wasn't, I didn't have the, this intense desire to fit in anymore. I think like when I was 16 and 17 and always felt like depressed and rejected and like unable to fit in, I wouldn't have been able to really figure out who I am as a person but having that experience, I was able to, by the time I got to college, I was led it, less interested in trying to be the person that people wanted me to be and more interested in trying to figure out who am I, who do I want, who, who do I want to be? And I think that that really helped me to be able to, to be in a position to, um, to focus. Now, the, uh, in the middle of all of that, before my last couple of years of high school, like the, so when I was like 15, 16, we were on the street. We were actually we were on the street a little bit. Basically, we um, the Jamaica Plain neighborhood of Boston was really different in the '90s than it is now. Uh, my mom had a friend, so we lost our housing. We didn't have anywhere to go. My mom had a friend who knew about an empty building in uh, Jamaica Plain, and so we squatted in an abandoned house for like a summer. And it was like this woman, Rosaura, who was Dominican, lived in one bedroom. And then my mom stayed in the other bedroom and I slept on the couch. Um, and yeah, that was, yeah, that was the, the summer. And then, you know, uh, that was the summer leading up into junior, uh, into my junior year of high school. And one of the things that I really remember about that time about, about being homeless was that it was really a, the people in the neighborhood where I live uh, just um, yeah, that, that it was, it was a time in my life in which I was, I was able to connect with people more um, that the people in the neighborhood that I live is a real like working class neighborhood, really diverse but yeah, I found it a lot easier to connect with people than I was in some of the other school systems that I was in. And so it was rough, but it, it, it was rough not knowing what was going to happen. You know, we, we never knew if we were going to get kicked out of the house. We never knew where we'd go then. We never knew. And then it, the idea of like, okay, well, I'm supposed to start school in the fall. Am I going to be able to even start school? But um we we managed to get an, uh, a rental by by the time school started and it kind of worked out. Why was it easier to connect? I would assume it would be more difficult to connect when yeah. you, you're living in, on a couch, so, basically. So what 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 I what I experienced? So 
in the my experience of growing up in the Boston area and moving around a lot, we lived in some uh, so some of the time we were like the poorest family in a white, you know, uh, upper middle class like suburb. And some some of the time we were living in really m- much more diverse working class areas. And I think one of the things that actually really shaped me and my interest in activism was this my experience that the suburban kids were cruel. Like the the especially the the wealthier kids. They they it felt like they were looking for anybody that they could kind of attack, that they could get away with torturing. Mm. Um, and they would go after them like psychologically and really kind of like like really enjoyed bullying and and sort of attacking people kind of like it had no consequence for them. Whereas when we were living in poorer parts of the city and and especially for the, for, uh, for a lot of my experience in high school, all my, most of my close friends were immigrants and it was just people where um, if you're not bothering them, they don't want to bother you. And, and the idea of, uh, just people who weren't looking for an excuse or like weren't looking for targets. Um, and so I feel like it was a lot easier because so that that move, we had let we had lost housing in sort of like a suburb where the, the sort of wealthier kid that I was trying to deal with wealthier kids and moved to a um, mostly. So where were we when the lights fell off you were talking about how um it was easier for you to be in this neighborhood where there weren't as many suburban kids i think that so i think one of the things that that um one of the takeaways that that really was impactful for me growing up was um just really feeling a lot of solidarity with um poor people and working class people and really having a hard time with wealthy people and really feeling like there's often a lot of cruelty. That's part of that culture, especially like my experience of, of like suburban kids and how they would react to, you know, treat somebody who is kind of depressed or, um, uh, or poor. And yeah. And I think that that, that definitely led me as I was learning more about myself and learning more about the world to a, a strong kind of commitment to, um, to social change and to, to really feeling a lot of solidarity with, um, with, with everyone who struggles, whether they're struggling um, mental health, whether they're struggling economically, whether they're struggling, you know, in terms of the various forms of, of oppression and, and identifying being like, yeah, wa- wanting to, to be involved in all those fights. Um, yeah. Does it bother you or did it start to bother you when people look at you and you're white and now white privilege is starting to be a thing where, that is attacking society in a way that it wasn't attacking society, I guess, 20 mm-hmm. years prior. And you're like, wait, wait a second. I'm not, I'm not what you're trying to go after. Did, did that ever get to you mentally? Yeah. Well, so I think, um, I think that 
I think there's like, like a couple of different things for, you know, I guess, I guess in terms of my experience, um, the, the best way that white privilege was, um, was sort of explained to me and like, as I was kind of growing into work as an activist was during the world trade, uh, world trade organization movement in like the early two thousands. So like almost 20 years ago, um, being in a group and learning how to facilitate. And one of the main things was just like, just pay attention to how much time different people are taking up in a group space. So let's say you have a meeting with 60 people and you're probably, and it's like a, you know, it's going to be a 45 minute or an hour long meeting. You're not going to hear from everybody. So I want you to notice if half the people, or let's say, let's say like 30% of the people in the group are white men, but 80% of the talking so far has been white men. I want you to notice that. And then we, we, uh, what we would call it was step up, step back. And we would say, so, um, so a white guy talks and has a, ha- has an opinion, probably, you know, maybe says something great and really important for the group. And then at the end of that, another white guy raises his hand to want to sort of respond. And the idea would be like, so let's hold on for a second. We just heard from one white man. So I just want to take a second to see if anybody else, uh, you know, ha- has something to say at this point. And the, the, the drive was, we're all conditioned and socialized in different ways. And, a spe- you know, like going through your experience of growing up, different people get different messages about how, how important their voice is in a group and how important it is for everybody to listen to what they have to say. And what we actually want in a group is the real consensus, which, it, which doesn't value any one person's uh, voice over any others. It's basically looking at like our, if we take all of our perspectives and we put them together, what are the, what are the areas that we really overlap that we want to work together? And so this clarity of like, if you just let people act on their social conditioning, you get over-representations of certain kinds of voices, right? Out of your 60 people, you might get 80% of the speaking coming from white men. And that's not representative of what's actually what your group is. And so I feel like that was the, that was the clearest thing for me. And I think that everybody who is working for racial justice and working for anti-racism, I think everybody has a tremendous amount of passion and a tremendous amount of, of a desire and a wish to create a better world. And I think that, I think we need, like, I think that just like the, I, first of all, I think it's, it's wonderful that we can talk about this. And I think that, um, 
I, I want to, um, yeah, that, that, that we need ways to be able to, um, we need ways to be able to, to talk about the real impact of race and conditioning and, um, and racial trauma in a way that allows people who want to create a better world to be able to come together with all of their creativity and all of their energy and work together. And I think that's a really tricky thing. And I think that coming back to mental health, one of the things that makes it the trickiest is, I'd say two things that make it tricky are trauma and burnout. And I think that, that there are two energies that come up so often around um, anti-racism work. One is trauma and our reactivity around, uh, and, and just the recognition that um, if, if I'm talking with somebody, with, with anybody, there, like, um, I rep, you know, I, I present as a white man, and there's a lot of violence in our society that's coming from white men. And so that part of their experience of me is going to be white man who potentially could be, you know, like, just like um, being associated with that group. And that it's not something that we can avoid. I mean, that, that's just sort of like how our bodies process trauma. Um, and I need to be open to the idea that, um, that just my presence can trigger trauma in people. And I think that's, that's easy for a mental health clinician to do, like recognizing like when you're working with people with trauma, you know that whatever their triggers are, it's going to trigger them. And then you need to sort of be open to that and work with it. And I think that that's important for anti-racism work. And then just, just like the, the amount of burnout that comes from trying to deal with these like from having the, basically the complex trauma of, of living in um, a society with so much violence and oppression that it's, it's, it it gets exhausting just to be able to, to kind of, to move through these things. And so, so um, I, I think that I'm really happy that younger generations are bringing this awareness into activist work. And I think that it's complex. And I think that we're still figuring out how to do it in a way that makes room for all of the good hearted people that want to create a better world together. I love how you lean on empathy, but I want to push back for one second. Sure. The idea that just your presence can trigger someone. Yeah. Don't you think that's a problem with the person themselves? You shouldn't, no one should be operating and moving in the world before they've even said anything and just said to themselves, okay, that, that person triggers me. They haven't done anything. That is reflective of the person, not on you. You know what I mean? Totally. Well, no, it depends. Okay. So, So explain it to me. Sure. So if somebody sees you, it, it, like if you walk into a room 
And let, let's say, let's, let's take it out of the, the racial justice standpoint and say, um, you walk into a room and, and I'm there and you look just like someone that I dated who was abusive. Mm. Like you look, you're like the spitting image of that person. I've never met Danny, but you really look like this person that I dated who was physically abusive to me. So yes, before you say anything, before I get to know Danny, I'm dealing with, damn, you remind me of that person. Yeah, I see. So the, the question, when it comes down to you, it's that, are you going to, do you have any empathy for me in that moment? Mm-hmm. Can you recognize that I, I'm, I want to get to know you, but it's hard? Because you look just like that person that was abusive to me for years. Like yeah. if you if you're willing to be like, yeah, I get it. I both like you want to get to know me, but as but like before I even open my mouth, you're having a reaction. And it's like, it's okay for you to have that reaction. It's inevitable for you to have that reaction. And um, and I can be here for it. And I think that in terms of racial violence, so we're, now we're talking about personal violence and in terms of racial violence, the same thing. So it wasn't that you're, you look just like my partner, but you look just like a class of people that I grew up knowing, you know, somebody who looks like you might attack me at any point and just get away with it. The problem I have with that is that oh. it's the, is the same thing that happened in 1930 in the South, let's say, where a group of white people said, those people trigger me because we're at the same water fountain. Sure, so sure. because I'm triggered, they have to leave. That, yeah, the no, problem no, I have is that it's the, it's the yeah. opposite of that. No, so um, the, the difference is what you do when you acknowledge that triggering. Hmm. So if you can acknowledge the trauma that's there, and at the same time, like you need to, it's making space for trauma without letting trauma be the driver of the interaction. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what I say that it's complex because the question for me, so, so again, it's like, if I'm triggered, it's important for me to own that I'm triggered and that you might be a perfectly safe person. And then the question for me is, do I have the emotional resources to, to move through that and get to know you? And what should I do if I don't? And the, the, the issue is about uh, blame, right? So let's say now, if we take it from societal back to personal, if you just look like this person that I dated that was abusive to me and I'm like, Hey, I just need to let you know, you look just like this person that I dated. And it's hard for me to just even be in the same room with you. I know that you're not that person, but you look like him. Um, how does that feel? To, like, you, you know what I mean? It, it's like, it, you get the sense of like, I, I wish we could connect but I need to, like, it's hard for me to. 
and, and I, and I, I, um, and, and, and it's this thing of like, you know, it has an impact on you, right? It's, it's has an impact on me and has an impact on you. But the reality is that all of our pain is collective and there's no such thing as pain that only impacts one person. So this is a situation where it's just sort of like, now you're, you're experiencing this like disconnection from the, you know, for the pain that like, you'd like to be able to talk to me, but I can't talk to you right now. The question is, what do we do with that trauma? And how, and and it's similar to working with PTSD. It's like, how can we develop more resilience in a way that isn't overwhelming? And I think that all of this, all of these conversations, I think that, um, I think that they need to happen. I, I think that they, sometimes they happen in a way that makes it harder than it needs to be to be able to see each other. But at the same time, that pain is there. And if, if I want to be a real ally to someone with complex trauma that is, was inflicted by people that look like me, I can't just tell them that they need to get over it. There needs to be space for healing and there needs to be space for being able to like, you know, talk about it. It's, it's hard. I mean, it's, it's a collective trauma. What do you recommend someone do if they're, if they're feeling that they see their ex or see someone who looks like their ex in an abusive relationship and, and is in that room and they can't get out of that room. What, what do you recommend they do in that moment? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that we do our best. Like, so, so first the standard guidance for someone with PTSD type of stuff, or, or just, you know, any type of traumatic response is um, you pay attention to your body and you try to notice what is the level of trigger that you're at. Because if you're at an eight out of 10 or above, then your only focus needs to be trying to reduce your triggering, get your mind off of the trigger. And it's going to be hard if you're in the physical presence of this thing that's triggering you. Like your body is going to be like, you'll need a lot of mental training to be able to override your body saying, no, that person is in the room. (laughs) Um, But the, the question is, is there some way of sending yourself compassion? Is there some way of moving your mind to a safer place? just to get your level of trigger down to a six out of 10. If you're triggered at a six out of 10, then the question is, you can feel that fear and recognize that you might not actually be in as much danger as your body believes. You have this dual awareness and that's what mindfulness of fear means mindfulness of emotions it's the ability to have a dual awareness where i'm paying attention to the fear in my body and at the same time i am kind of recognizing that 
in this moment, I'm not in danger. Fear is present, but I'm not in danger. And being able to to just observe the fear with compassion, not blaming my own fear, not criticizing my own fear, not um, sort of like demonizing my own fear, which is that that it's it's that thing that really, you know, creates these spirals of like, if, if somebody says like, well, you know, if you're triggered, it's your fault. Just don't be that, that what that feels like on the inside is there's this fear in me. And I'm like, shut up fear, go away. And it doesn't, it's not effective. I need to be able to kind of recognize, okay, I'm, I'm triggered. I'm afraid in this moment. And then I need to look around and be like, what's true. I'm in this moment. Where am I? And then the reality is that might, like, I might not, it's going to be really tough for me to also be having a pleasant conversation if, if I'm, you know, if I'm a six out of 10 and I'm actually addressing and, and sort of processing and healing. And so what I would probably do is, um, yeah, it is, is to, you know, this, this ability to recognize triggers and to be present with them. Now let's say in terms of what you're, what, like just in terms of like what you brought up so far, um, if you're a white person, especially a white man, then the thing that I would want you to practice with is how are you triggered by triggering other people? Like, can you be present with someone else who can't see you can't see your good intentions in this moment. You want them to see what a good person you are. You want them to see actual Danny and not just how you present. And that brings up a trigger for you. Does it? I don't know. It does it. Okay. So, so for a lot of people, it does. Yeah. So, but the ability to, um, to allow like some, okay, this person doesn't see me right now mm-hmm. and I want to, um, yeah, just be okay with that. Like, let that, let that be like, um, I hope that we can get to know each other. We may or may not be able to, and I'm going to keep an open heart. That's really the key, right? Keeping an open heart and, and not judging the other person or, worried about if the other person is judging you in any given moment and understanding you are doing the best you possibly can in this moment. And that gives me peace. And even, cause even if they are judging, like that's great practice. Mm -hmm. Can I love someone who's judging me and they're wrong about me? Yeah. Can I love someone who's lost in a projection? That's my practice. Um, and so it's, if I can do that, then it's, it's all these, this ability to be in the same room together, to be able to have whatever reactions that we have. And these reactions are our wishes. They're actually compassionate wishes for, you know, it might be a wish for deeper connection and actually seeing each other in intimacy, or it might be a wish for safety, whatever the wish is be able to feel that wish and let it be there 
it's really tough too because I gave you the situation where you're in the room sure. and and you're triggered. But that's kind of like asking somebody, you know, what would you do if you're in a fight and yeah. you haven't trained for it? Sure. So, sure. so talk to me about the training aspect of it to get yourself to that point where you're you're able to be triggered by something, feel the fear within you, fear, feel yourself, get yourself from an eight to a three. Talk about yeah. the practice part of the whole thing. So the practice always starts with getting clear about how do you want to be different in the world, right? So uh, for some people, so let's say it's just general social anxiety. And it's like, hey, I just want to be able to go to a party or a friend's house or just be outside and not be anxious. So that, that might be your goal. Another person's goal might be, I want to be able to engage in anti-racist work, but it's so hard for me emotionally to be in these spaces. Um, so the, the question is, you, you need to decide what's the shift that you're looking for. And then you train yourself in this, uh, by going to a safe space. And the first thing that we need to do in any type of training is, can I feel safe in an obviously safe space? That's step one. That's like being able to lift the bar. You know, if, if, you're, if you're learning how to, to lift weights, ju just being able to do the movement before you put on any, any weights um, is the practice of, I'm going to close myself in my own room and spend 40 minutes here and there is nothing wrong but can i feel like there's nothing wrong can i come back into this moment and actually feel that there is just for this minute there's nothing i need to be afraid of that's the beginning of mindfulness practice. And sadly, some people believe that that's all that there is to it. They just, you know, they, they go and they spend their morning meditation and they feel really peaceful. And then they go into their day and they're still an asshole or whatever. Um, and it's just because they believe that the, it's just about quieting your mind and feeling peaceful. And then that's it. In reality, you can go so much deeper. And You'll go so much deeper depending on what kind of ch change and transformation you're looking for. But ultimately, any type of change and transformation needs to be about being able to touch peace and freedom in all of the different situations in your life. So let's say it is, um, I'm, li uh, I'm living at an intentional community. And there are some people there that I'm having a hard time interacting with and that we have just like built up resentments over years, right? What my practice looks like is I go, I sit on my cushion. I come back to this moment when everything is well, everything is safe and peaceful. And I wait until my body feels openness and love and joy and peace. 
And then in my mind, I bring up the people that I have resentments toward. And I allow my body to have a reaction. Maybe it goes from a zero to a three, five level of anxiety. And then I sit with that. This is my training. If I can sit with this community member that initially just thinking of them triggers me, and I feel it in my body because I'm paying attention to my body. If I can stay with that feeling, first sending myself love and compassion until I'm no longer triggered. And then as soon as I'm no longer triggered, naturally insight arises and I see them differently. I see the relationship differently. I'm able to name it differently. And now when I think of that same person, there's a fondness, like not just neutral, but like a, a sense of like love and care that arises in me. That, that means my practice is working. That reminds me of the practice that Ram Das used to do of holding a politician that he really disliked yeah. and, and just having that in his mind while he was meditating. And so what I really like that you added to that is first, before going to that place, first feel calm and centered yourself so that you can give yourself a place to come back to when you're holding that person in mind. That's really powerful. And I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing is like, when you, I remember him talking about George Bush. I, I, um, I'm glad that, uh, yeah, I mean, just imagining what it would have been like for him trying to practice with Trump or, or whoever is, would be a trigger for him in this, in these moments. But, um, but Thinking of him, when you picture this, who, this person that triggers you, when pain arises in you, there's, a, there's basically two different ways to orient your practice. Do I want to try to send love to that person? It's almost like I want to override my initial response. Or, and what I found is more helpful for me, is I want to start off by sending myself love and compassion the pain in me, right? So when I think about this person who's triggering me, the first thing that I wanna know is like, hey, to the aversion in me, to the grief or anger in me, hey, what is it that, it, that what's your deep wish? And it's like, I, I really wish that people could be kind to each other. And this person is a symbol for me, might not, may or may not be true, might be a full projection, but they're a symbol for me of people being unkind. And I just want to sit with that wish that people could be kind. And I want to send myself love to that wish. I really wish that people would be kind to each other. And then once I've been able to integrate that energy, then I look back at this person with, in, a, in a way where I'm just like, yeah, when I see you, I see your pain and I see like the violence that you're, that I, as, at least I believe that you're perpetuating. And I really wish that people could be kind. And I'm just going to sit with that wish. It's like loving yourself 
before sending love to the rest of the world is really powerful because you can only give other people what you have in your own heart a lot of the times. Um, you know, you've mentioned previously how, you know, one person's pain is another person's pain as well, the collective trauma. And it something that comes up time and time again when I've been meditating and also I've heard from so many other people is the interconnectedness of everything. Yeah. Why do you think that's such a common thing that arises when people spend a lot of time with themselves? I think it's, I think it's philosophy. I I don't necessarily, I think it's, um, I think that when you, like, like, I don't think it necessarily needs to be. Um, So honestly, my belief about um, interconnectedness, which Thich Nhat Hanh might call wisdom or right view and mindfulness or sort of like just presence and spending time with yourself. uh, I think that they're, they're kind of like two different ingredients. And the reason that I say that is that I know a lot of people who um, practice meditation and don't really ever learn about the sort of philosophy side and they'll uh, they'll learn a little bit more about regulating their emotions. Actually, I deal deal with this a lot um, in the mental health world because the mental health world is all about how do we use these practices to have less anxiety and depression and then they get really upset when you start to bring in, you know, interconnectedness or, or, wow, inter- so fascinating. Or, or just sort of the philosophical aspects of it. So in my first, so uh, this is like a little bit of a tangent and then I'll come back to your question. Uh, when I was working on my first book, um, it was Thich Nhat Hanh, the last summer retreat that he offered before his stroke. It was the summer of 2014. Um, So my son was about one and a half years old. I went to Plum Village for the 21-day retreat in June. It was the last 21-day retreat that he offered, that Tignahan offered before he had a, a stroke in the fall. So during that retreat, there was a moment when he said, I want to invite anyone who teaches mindfulness to come to sit at the front of the room. They actually had everybody shuffle around. And if you teach, I want you up here. And then he looked at everybody and he said, is there such thing? We, we know that there's such thing as, as right mindfulness. Is there such thing as wrong mindfulness? And he looks around. He's like, there's right mindfulness. That's part of the eightfold path. Does that mean that there is wrong mindfulness? Anybody? Come on. Like, you know, anybody want to answer? Silence. You know, crickets. Um, nobody wanted to, to, to respond to the Zen master and his question. And he said, there is such thing as wrong mindfulness. He said, right mindfulness is part of the noble eightfold path for transforming suffering. Wrong mindfulness is when you teach mindfulness in a way that isn't connected 
to the noble eightfold old the noble eightfold path to transform suffering if you are teaching mindfulness in a way that is not part of transforming suffering and cultivating joy then that is wrong mindfulness and then he went further and he said the noble eightfold path begins with right view right view is the view of interbeing that all formations inter are that they that they you cannot have a self entity you cannot have one thing without about all others and if you teach mindfulness without teaching right view then you are teaching wrong mindfulness and i was in in the process i had like you know a draft of my first book which was a mental health book for an academic press and i had to go back to my editor and say actually i need to include a section on right view and interbeing and they're like but no like that that has nothing to do with like you this is these are mental health practices you're not going to teach somebody about you know uh, like non self and uh, and impermanence as you're not telling therapists they need to do that and i was like actually i have to my teacher just told me that i have to and so I, I wrote in a, a section that was about non-self and inter, uh, inter uh, interbeing and impermanence, and and so right view, that piece about interconnectedness, is a view that allows us. I, I would say that it is a way of relating to the world that leads to much less suffering and that if we're able to slow down our cognitive processes so that we can actually see that we're not just interacting with the real world but instead we have all of these mental objects that are constructing a world around us and that we're conditioned once we see kind of the gears of what's happening then we or, or like through that process we're bringing in philosophy we're bringing in and actually being able to see like that the same direct experience could be interpreted in this entirely other way the 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 same lived experience that tells me the table is completely separate from the chair could be like i can look at that same visual data and see that it could be interpreted in a completely different way and when i interpret it through the eyes of interbeing and non-self i experience a great degree of freedom and joy and spaciousness and so whether it's truer or whether it's just a more helpful frame i don't know cuz i i mean i don't know that there i i can't even imagine someone making an argument that they could know that they could distinguish there but i i think that it's it's an important and an underdiscussed element of mindfulness is is non-self and impermanence and right view. Yeah, I think that it 
almost doesn't matter if it's true or not, if it serves and is helpful to living and being a kinder human being in the moment um, is kind of how I think about it. But yeah, do you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the, yeah, I think that um, ultimately there are so many ways that we could understand the world that are, you know, equally valid or seemingly equally valid. So we should choose the one that leads to the great, like the, the greatest possible um, happiness and the least possible suffering. You know, I was listening to you on other podcasts to prepare for this one. And you said something that really struck me, which is that people can have different emotional intelligences mm-hmm. in different situations. Sure. And you could be emotionally intelligent when hosting a podcast, but you can be emotionally an idiot when someone is suffering. And and I thought this was so true because one of the problems that I feel I have is that I don't know what to say often when yeah. someone tells me that someone passed away that's close to them. Yeah. And I want to ask you, what is the appropriate response? Yeah. Obviously, le- leading with love and kindness is a given to me personally, but sure. it's like sometimes I struggle for the words. Totally. Um, so yeah, the, the project that I'm doing right now is called peer collective. And the idea I spent most of my life trying to teach people how to have compassion for themselves. And eventually at this point feel like it's great if you can develop that capacity, but it takes a lot of time and energy. And for most people, being able to have a place to go to get compassion, to receive compassion from someone else is just more viable. Like if you're in a moment of suffering, learning how to embrace that suffering on your own is a lot harder than just being going to someone who can do that. So what we are starting to look for is how do we identify people who have that capacity, who, who can bring empathy and compassion and, um, and sort of emotional intelligence specifically when someone's in distress, when someone's suffering. So we, we've, that, that's the, the, the basis of Peer Collective is, is all the work that we've done in, in learning how to identify that skill. What I'd say for anyone who's trying to develop that skill is make it a focus of your meditation practice of, of whatever mental training that you're doing. And what the, the focus becomes is first, first we have an awkward interaction, right? Someone says, my partner just passed away. And we respond in a way that, that, in retrospect, like, ah, I wish I, that like, I don't, it didn't work. So then we take that interaction and we bring it to our meditation cushion. And we sit and we picture them and they're saying, my partner just passed away or whatever it is. And first we notice what are, what's my reaction? It's like this big, like, I want to help, but I don't know how. Now I'm just going to, now I'm going to take 20 minutes and just sit with the feeling of, 
I want to help, but I don't know how. And recognize the existential reality that that is part of being a human being. Sometimes we really wish that we could help and there's nothing that you can actually do. And then we learn how to be comfortable in the space of, I wish I could help you and I know that there's nothing I can do. And this is not in a defensive way, not in a therefore I'm going to avoid you or therefore I'm going to go somewhere else. I can actually sit and make eye contact knowing there's nothing I can do to help you. And once I can be there, then I can put myself in your shoes. And I can ask myself, so if it were me, Now I'm going to spend the next 20 minutes on my meditation cushion picturing someone who is close to me dying. And they're gone now. And what is it that I would want? And it's probably not teachings. And it's probably not any attempt to fix or to give me a better perspective. And it's probably something about not feeling alone in grief. Someone being like, um, maybe it would be great if they've also had a similar loss and I can actually trust that they know what I'm feeling. But even if they hadn't, just someone who is like willing to be with me while I'm in pain instead of being grossed out or triggered by my pain. And I think that ultimately one of the biggest things is what we find, we can have such a big heart that we actually get triggered by other people's pain. What do you mean by that? I mean, someone comes to you and they say, this incredibly traumatic thing just happened and you want to help so much that you can't sit still that being near their pain when you when you can't do anything about it it just feels intolerable so we learn how to tolerate that so that it's like hey i don't need you to feel any better than you feel right now i can be here with you and make eye contact with you as bad as you feel And I don't need your pain to go away. And then that is the kind of togetherness. Because what it is, you're not just saying like, oh, I'm here for you, Tim, um, because we can avoid your pain or because your pain isn't you or because like the pain isn't real or whatever. It's like, no, I can be here with the pain in you. The part of you that you wish would go away The part of you that you're trying to avoid, I don't need to avoid it. I can look right at it. And then you're like, wow, that's the the feeling of being held. I'm so grateful that you not only gave a blueprint for what to say, but the thought process in how to deal with that is so valuable. And I'm so grateful for that. Thank you.
it's something that I really want to work on. And I'm going to take that that 20 minutes, that 40 minutes, whatever it is, just to sit down and, and think about that situation. So thank you. How did, I want to switch here and talk about how did the, you eventually become or study psychotherapy, I believe, in graduate mm-hmm. school. Yeah. But you had spent time meditating before that with Thich Nhat Hanh, right? Yeah. And so how did those two come against each other? The yeah. graduate study and also the meditation itself, because both are really studying the mind in well, a crazy way. Kind of. I I was on a three-month retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh in, um, in Deer Park Monastery outside of San Diego. Uh, and it was this fantastic retreat in 2004 when all of the monastics from around the world who were uh, following Thich Nhat Hanh came together for three months. Um, and I was um, at that point in my mid twenties and realizing that I needed to figure out some way to pay the bills. I've been sort of like, you know, kind of getting by for the past few years, mostly doing activism. And I needed, I wanted to figure out something, some way that my life could still be filled with activism and meditation, but also that I'd be able to like, um, buy food for myself and and get by and um really clinical psychology became something where it was like well here's a field where i'll I'll, so if if i'm if i'm going to go into political work then people want you to be stressed out and if i'm going to go into a lot of other kind of fields people are looking for somebody who's like really like overworked and stressed out. And that's kind of what they're, they're hoping for from you and clinical psychology, at least you're supposed to be someone who is present. And so, and then realizing that I could use clinical psychology as a way to share with people practices that have been transformative in my life. Um, and that it also would be something that was flexible enough that I could, you know, have time for activism. So I went to graduate school for that reason. I personally do not feel like I learned anything of value in graduate school. I feel like it was just kind of jumping through hoops to be able to get to, to, li- to licensure. I think I, I, learned, I learned some things that were interesting Um, and, and, but what I came out with it probably more than anything wasn't from graduate school, it was from my own independent studies, recognizing that, uh, that there were researchers in clinical psychology who, when putting together all of the outcome literature that exists, find that the biggest predictor of positive outcome is exactly what Thich Nhat Hanh would have said it would be, which is compassion. And, you know, they call it common factors of alliance and warmth and empathy. And Thich Nhat Hanh would have called it compassion. But 
I think really what I got from, from my academic study of clinical psychology was just another lens on what I had learned from Thich Nhat Hanh, which is compassion is something that you can develop and train yourself in and grow. And that compassion is the antidote to suffering. What is the difference between compassion and love, if any? I, I really try not to get caught in semantics. So it depends on like what you're, no, I, I know you're not trying to say that, but, but um, my, my first response is there doesn't need to be. Yeah. People use the words really interchangeably. If you want to be a little bit more technical from a Buddhist philosophy standpoint, um, metta or maitri um, is considered different, which is uh, loving kindness, is different than karuna or compassion in the sense that, let's say you, so if I care about Danny, if I care about you, um, when I see you suffering, the care that arises in me, we call compassion. If I see you well, and I see some, and I, and I see, um, or just like the part in me that, that wants good things to happen to you, we call that loving kindness or love. Hmm. They're different aspects of the same experience. Um, but so, so we could say like the part of the, the way in which I want good things to happen in, in your life is loving kindness. And the way in which I don't want you to suffer is compassion. Yeah. It's not like they're separate, but yeah. Yeah. No, I, I wasn't trying to play semantics. I was just curious from someone who has studied so much. Totally. No, no, but it's true because I think that, well, I just, I know that there's a lot of Buddhist philosophers that really love semantics and they <laughs> like, like defining things in these really kind of in these intense ways. And for me, it's just sort of like, well, people use the word however they want to use it. And, and yeah. sometimes it's, it gets kind of annoying when someone, when there's a word like love that's used so broadly and people mm-hmm. are like, no, this is, this is the precise thing that it means. And it's like, whatever, like, you know, just like, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, it it can mean whatever people, however people use it. But, but I think that there's a, there's some beauty in that teaching of like, when I'm thinking about loving somebody, recognizing that part of that is that I want good things for them. And then I can look and like, what are the ways that I'm not really loving this person? What are the, what are the ways that good things could happen? And I'm jealous or good things can happen. And I feel now it makes me insecure. Um, that's getting in the way of my ability to love. What are the more difficult parts of looking inward towards yourself? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, in some ways it's tolerating the pain that you find. But I had a f- good friend who said, there's, n- there's, no, there's no emotional pain that hurts worse than slamming your finger in a car door. Everybody's had their finger slammed in a car door and it hurts. But there's nothing that hurts worse than that. And so if you've lived through that, then you can live through whatever emotional pain is going to come up in you. I think maybe the hardest thing in our society right now 
is creating enough space to be able to be present with yourself to the point where you get to the other side of that pain. Because if you're, if you only have like a lot of people are like, all you need is, you know, you know, 10 breaths a day. And it's like, sure, you can experience some benefits if you just take three breaths in the morning and three breaths at night. But, but like, if you want to be able to move through your life feeling really free, if you want to be able to like look at someone that you've never met before and just be like, I love that person. It takes training. It takes time. And it takes, and if you basically, and if you want to, to not have your trauma driving you like in the driver's seat in your life, it takes time and energy. And I think that for so many people, the hard, the hardest part, like, and this is one of the things that I feel so grateful for. I finished college and people are like, well, what do you, what, you know, what do you want to do for work? And I'm like, I don't want to do work. I'm just going to go follow Tina around and just eat whatever scraps people give me. I'll sleep on the floor, you know, whatever. Um, and I think that I'm probably one of the last people that, that uh, finished college without six figures of debt. And, and I think that that would have felt different. You know, I, I finished college with like 25 grand in debt. And it was like, okay, well, I'll, I can deal with that at some point. You know, I can get it deferred and hardship deferments and that kind of shit. But, um, but I think like being able to, to actually take extended periods of time and do the work that needs to be done. I think that's, that's often the hardest thing. And that takes courage and commitment and priorities. Yeah. When you were saying that, you know, you could take three breaths in the morning and night and that's great. It reminded me of like a personal trainer giving the advice of doing three push-ups in the morning and night. Yes, it's great. Yes, your identity will start to change slightly because of it. But if you want results that last throughout the day and your life, you need to commit to the practice of going to the gym for longer. And I think about it the same way emotionally as well. This has been an incredible amount of fun. I've learned so much. I would love, before I let you go, I would like to ask for a parting piece of wisdom for someone who's pursuing the highest version of themselves, whether that's mentally, physically, spiritually, what would you say to that person? Find mentors, find people who are practicing in a way that is leading to the results that you want in your life right? Do not look for the correct way to practice. Look for people who've developed the kinds of virtues that you want in your life and then learn how they practice. I love that. That's such great advice. And I've followed it myself to great success. Thank you so much, Tim. Where can people find more from you? Um, So you can just kind of look me up online, but, um, and the as I mentioned, the project that I'm working hard now is, is peer collective. If you're in a moment and you need some compassion, you want um, someone to be someone who is exceptional at being able to listen. um, Peer collective is a place that you can find that mental health support. Awesome. You could click that down below if you're interested. Thank you so much, Tim. I really appreciate you.
Hope you enjoyed that episode with Tim Desmond. If you have any thoughts or feedback about this episode, let me know on Twitter at HeyDannyMiranda. I'm looking forward to hearing from you, and I'm so grateful that you made it to this point in the episode. It means the world to me, and I truly, truly appreciate you. Until next time, boys and girls, thank you for listening, and I will see you in the next one. Peace.